0: You're listening to Dublab during our Fall 2018 membership drive. Become a member of Dublab and support independent, bold, and innovative radio. Starting at just $5 a month, you can have access to exclusive ticket giveaways, merchandise by artists such as Sunora, Low Limit, Magdalena Suarez, and Brenna Murphy, as well as a unique care package curated by Dublab family and friends just for you. If Dub Lab has impacted you in any way, please consider becoming a member or donating today. For more information, please head over to www.dublab.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to In Conversation, a DubLab Lab podcast where each week we will bring you interviews from the Dub Lab Radio Archives.
0: dublab.com. You are tuned in and very thrilled to have John Perazzi in the studio, director of the film Don't Think I've Forgotten Cambodia's Lost Rock and Roll. How you doing, John? I'm great, Mark. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming in and uh, talking about the film today. I have not seen it yet, but uh, it's nice. I'm uh, I'm a blank slate, so we can uh, move from there. But the trailer looks incredible, and, and I'm really fascinated by the subject matter. So can you uh, set the scene of how you might have uh, first stumbled upon these sounds and this history of Cambodia's lost rock and roll?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I was asked to go to Cambodia to work on a different film in 2001, it was a film called City of Ghosts that Matt Dillon directed. And uh, getting to Phnom Penh, it was very eye-opening because uh, Phnom Penh had been a modern city and it had been a very unique city. Uh, there was an architecture movement there called New Khmer Architecture, and you could see all these buildings were still standing, but the, most of them were deserted and uh, in a state of disrepair. Um, so, yeah, I just it, it made me start to wonder, well, what was it like here mm. before the war? And then once I heard the music, uh, you know, connecting that to the buildings, it seemed like it must have been a pretty great place.
0: Were you hearing the music in the streets? Were you hearing it in cafes?
1: It's funny. (laughs) The first time I really heard it was there's a scene in City of Ghosts where James Caan is uh, singing a Rosario Sotia song in Khmer. And um, he's drunk. He's in a karaoke bar. And as a camera operator, I was actually looking at him through the lens, watching him attempt to sing this music, and that was actually my first introduction, and it wasn't particularly impressive musically. But yeah, and then eventually, you know, you would hear it in places, and people always talked about there was this great music scene, but no one could really, you know, tell you anything about it. Hmm. There was nowhere to go to find out anything specifically about it. So um, the more I heard it, and the more I realized what a great scene it had been, and how many different styles they had, you know, been accessing and creating themselves. Um, I just got more and more curious. Mm. So, um, also, you know, the modern history of Cambodia to me was really fascinating. Like what had happened, how the Khmer Rouge came to power, the involvement of the U.S. and all of that, and um, that was another component to to my own idea about putting a film together. That that was a really powerful story, <clears throat> and also the music being so. So varied, um, starting the film, I've realized I had great music and when you're making a music documentary, uh, that's a great place to start from.
0: How did the, the sound of rock and roll trickle into Cambodia? I know that throughout Southeast Asia, there was a bit of a, a, a wave of that, but how did the music first touch down?
1: I think a big part of it as far as even before rock and roll, as far as Western music, um, Cambodia became independent from France in 1953 and young Cambodians really had this desire to become a modern country. I think independence fueled that and um, part of that was being open to the modern world, the western world and its music. So it was coming in initially through wealthy people, through the elite class who had access but as technology changed and the transistor radio came in and uh, record stores began to open. It became more and more open to um, to all people, really, in the city especially.
0: And the Cambodian rock and roll and, and the music scene, there's these these golden characters in a way um, whom you still see as you go around Phnom Penh. You you might see a Sin Sisimuth poster on the wall, and usually it almost looks like this kind of colorized like someone had taken a black and white film and colored it in or something. Can you set that cast of characters, the the important figures in that scene?
1: Yeah, it was it was a whole scene, complete scene and I think for Cambodians they were important characters and it's funny how each singer had a specific personality that came through their music, through the lyrics. A lot of them didn't write their own words, but the songwriters would play on who that character was. So you have like the crooner, you have the very risque you know female singer, you have the very proper female singer, and you have the risque male singer who's sort of very body lyrics, and he's the, the class clown essentially, and they all sort of played those parts very well hmm. um, so you know, in the music and once, once the thing for me was that the, I think for a lot of people who don't speak the language when they first heard. The music it is very captivating, just musically. But once we started getting the lyrics translated, I realized the lyrics are equally captivating. So putting those together was really was a great discovery for me.
0: One of the uh, the characters, and you mentioned uh, the crooner, um, Sin Sissamouth. Uh, Sisimoth, I'm not sure how to yeah. pronounce any of these names. Uh,
1: in, I think in Khmer, it's actually not mm-hmm. even Khmer, and mm-hmm. Cambodian is pronounced Khmer um it's since his um, since but i think yeah we say since so uh
0: let's hear under the sound of rain what what year do you think this tune No,
1: it, it's one of the difficult things we have is it was, we don't really know a lot of the years mm-hmm. that the music was recorded we do know his trajectory as far as ha- wh- how he started to sing who his influences were and how he developed from interviewing people who knew him his family members musicians who played with him hmm. But is, he, he was a crooner initially, and in the 50s, he came to Phnom Penh in the early 50s. He was born in 1935, so he's sort of one of the older characters. Mm-hmm. But um, as rock and roll came in in the, the late 50s, early 60s, he, he sort, sort of segued right into that pretty seamlessly. But this song is, is more of an example of his crooning skills.
0: And at this time, was he a wildly popular musician, already a star? Yeah, he
1: became a big star very quickly. And he 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 went to National Radio. National Radio is also something that really helped propel people, you know, into into fame and get their their voices out, you know, out to Cambodians and um the story goes is that the queen herself heard his, heard him singing on the radio and asked him to come to the Royal Palace hmm. and sing traditional Cambodian uh, music, which is very difficult to sing, mm-hmm. and he spent time learning traditional music after he had already been a modern singer. So it was sort of backwards, is what you would expect. But um, and then he went into rock and roll, so he was
0: really adept at singing many different styles. Let's hear a tune from uh, Sin System. This comes from the soundtrack of the film. Don't think I've forgotten Cambodia's lost rock and roll film by. John Perozzi. Parazzi, Perozzi. <laughs> I am equally bad with pronouncing it's, your name It's Perozzi, but Perazzi. if you we were in Roman, it would be Perozzi. <laughs> right, here we go. Under you. the sound of rain. <laughs> A crooner indeed, a uh, system of singing uh, under the sound of rain.
1: You know, uh, if I could do something, Mark, just Sure, quickly. of course. I mean, I've been doing a bunch of interviews for the film, now, and I've never really got to do this. I would mm-hmm. like to read some of the lyrics of that
0: song. That would be great. That would be yeah. wonderful.
1: Um, my love, turn around and look at me. Listen to the thunder harmonizing with the rain. A rhythmic pounding sound sings, narrating a song of nostalgia. The rain continues to fall with the sound of water dripping. The drops speak to one another while reminiscing. They sing to soothe and comfort you, my love, falling melancholy as it touches the earth. The rain falls hard, soaking the ground. I'm here embracing you in my arms, keeping you wrapped every minute. I would never want to disappoint you. The sound of the rain mesmerizes, soothing us both, whispering to us, telling us, that this love is our destiny.
0: Hmm. Wow.
1: So, you know, it's great. I mean, it's very poetic, and since Sisamut was a great songwriter as well as a singer, and uh I think for Cambodians it's really why he's number
0: one. Maybe, you know, also this, you know the the lyrics, you know, are are this point where you can lay there and embrace a lover and enjoy Life and, which... then, and
1: and the natural world. I mean, he yeah. a lot of the songs are really in tune to nature and the beauty of mm-hmm. Cambodia, which you know at this time was a very beautiful place. Yeah, and, and you know, nature was a very important part of people's daily lives in terms of you know rice farmers and and people living off the land and living off the water. It, it's uh, it's a big part of what Cambodia was. And
0: where where was uh, artists like Sin with Performing at, at these points? Where would you maybe hear him play this?
1: You know, it's funny with him because um, a musician that we interviewed who knew him well said that initially he was very reluctant to record because he was afraid people wouldn't come and see him play. Um, but once he realized that recording would actually get his voice to more mm-hmm. and more people he became sort of a studio junkie and would never leave the studio on um, there's thousands of songs by synthesizer wow. um and he started to perform live less and less and um he was also self-conscious i, I understand that he um you know he was balding became middle-aged got a little bit of a, a pot belly and was a little bit nervous about performing live because rock and roll had really taken hold by the late 60s and there's actually a song that he he does called "I'm Too Old to Wear Bell Bottoms," <laughs>
0: so so he was definitely you know before this wave that took over in, in the film in the trailer of the film. There's uh, some folks talking about how they were you know excited they're playing the hippie game and they were they're they're being hippies and he was that that previous generation, um, but he also then made some more ripping rock and roll well
1: things. yeah the, the, the rock rock and roll started to come onto the scene in the late 50s early 60s and it was really teenagers it was wealthy teenage kids who had access to you know bands like The Ventures and Cliff Richard and The Shadows um, uh, and specifically there's one band Baxi Shim Krong that are on the soundtrack and they're in the film but um, since this someone did see what they were up to and did decide this is the way the music's going I want to do this as well and we can hear a little bit of that too
0: yeah, shall we hear Dan Gogo? Is yeah. that a good... Yeah, it's a great one. Right, here we go. Dan agogo, a different side of Sin Sismut. So uh, uh, definitely different sides, super ripping, fun... Dance-A-Go-Go from Sin Sissamut. Do you know if these are the same players he was playing with? Was he playing with a core group of musicians over the years or kind of shifting amongst studio musicians?
1: There was definitely a studio musician uh, setup going on. And um, even for Sin Sissamut and or Satia, they were the greatest singers, and you could hire them to sing your song Hmm. um, if you had the right amount of money. And um, I know there's one band that's uh, on the soundtrack and in the film, the Ka who um wanted to hire Rosary Sotia but they couldn't afford her so they hired Mausaret instead and um mm-hmm. i think yeah the top top tier people stuck together you know they they were making the hits and they were getting the most the most uh, money for what they were doing in the studio mm-hmm. there were a lot of small studios in Phnom Penh and they started to spring up and i think there was a demand for the music and as the demand grew then you know the musicians met that
0: demand Were there radio stations in Phnom Penh playing this music, or was it more of a recorded music being passed around? As far as I know, there was the national radio Mm -hmm. station.
1: Um, I don't think there were other independent stations so much. And initially, the the national radio station didn't have the ability to record, Mm -hmm. um, so people would come in and perform live. And then eventually, um, they got recording equipment, and everyone sort of came through there.
0: Wow. And television as well was that something where these folks performing live on on TV?
1: Yeah, definitely. And unfortunately, I've never seen any any of that mm. uh, footage. Uh, there's none that we've been able to find. Mm. I'm not, you know I'm hoping through all this that there's some cachet of stuff that's yep. uncovered. I mean, you never know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, as, as of now, there's not.
0: Um, definitely, I mean, one of the things. We'll, we'll we'll kind of dive deeper into this momentarily, but you know, pe- people weren't hiding this stuff. I mean, they were they were being shoved out of the cities, and when I had the good fortune to travel to Phnom Penh and was searching for music, you know, the someone's not going to tuck you know stack of forty fives under their arms as they're being shoved out, you know, gunpoint. To the fields, and the TV stations, the radio, these things—I'm sure—being burned to the ground, things being destroyed, and this sign of the bourgeoisie and a, a life that's going to be erased. Um, you know, the the cost of saving this stuff—you know—seems like it was probably too high. Um, where were these archives from? Are they mostly from cassette? Or you were saying that there were forty fives around in that world? Were you finding these forty fives out there?
1: Well, there's a few things. First of all, uh, the Khmer Rouge understood the power of, you know, music and propaganda. And actually, the radio station in Phnom Penh wasn't burnt down. It was one of the first places they they took took over. <laughs> and they sure. and and I was yeah. told from people who worked there, they actually kept a few musicians mm-hmm. alive in, at the radio station to use it to yep. be able to broadcast. Yeah. So they did empty the city um, of two million people in three days. But the Khmer Rouge leadership, including Pol Pot, stayed in, yeah. in Phnom Penh and used it as their base. Um, but as far as the music you know, and, and its ability to, to survive all this, I think part of it is that because there was so much of it, because it was so popular you know, it had a better chance mm-hmm. of um, of surviving all that. And um, yeah. and also for people right after the Khmer Rouge, looking to sort of connect back to the time before the war when life was good, that was an obvious way to do it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, there's a singer in the film, Cham Charvin, who's actually Cham Mole from Dengue Fevers' older sister, who was a child singer during the Khmer Rouge. And mm-hmm. she was forced to sing these propaganda songs. And she told me that when they came back to the the destroyed city right after the fall of the Khmer Rouge, they wanted to hear music so badly that they found an old cassette player and the cassette tape, but it had no batteries and they had no electricity. So her brother got a bicycle wheel and somehow hooked up, you know, some cable to the bicycle wheel so that he could turn the wheel and it would wow. turn the cassette player so they could hear music. Wow. And that's how much the music meant to them. And I, I think that's a really great story to to show how even... After all they'd been through, that they wanted to, they needed that music and it was important to them.
0: I'm sure that, you know, this music was resonating in people's minds and hearts as they were going through terror and, and yeah i wish you'd hell.
1: seen i wish you'd seen the film yeah i'm, I'm excited <laughs> i'm only saying that because there's a scene in the film where few people recount how they would sing these songs mm. in the fields yeah. working during the khmer Rouge, and they realized they were all city people together and they were in a safe place yeah and they would sing these songs from you know the, the, from the popular music scene wow uh, to bond together and, mm. and to be together so
0: yeah incredible yeah. um so we just heard that since it's the most- tune and uh, so that's that's mid sixties around there yeah kind um and then you've got the more psychedelic sound and, and things kind of uh, popping on the scene, people as the sixties progress, people doing the hippie thing um and was this mostly Phnom Penh? This was happening. This was a yeah. city thing.
1: Yeah, I think it was. You know, Phnom Penh is really the, the one, the one really urban center in Cambodia. There's a, smaller cities, mm-hmm. but um, but it was sort of centrally located, and it was where the music industry was located. And mm-hmm. uh, and it was, you know, under under Sihanouk, under the Prince Sihanouk, who controlled Cambodia, who was uh, you know really a big part of modernizing the country and a big part of being a patron of the arts and also as a composer himself. Um, They would hold contests all across the country, you know, out into the outer regions of 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 Cambodia, and discover new singers. So many Mm. of the the really great singers were discovered and brought to the capital.
0: One of the great singers you were talking about, and 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 she might not have been discovered in this way. I'm not sure, but maybe the most famous counterpoint to someone like Sin Sisamut would be Ross. Sorry Sothe? <laughs> Alright. Um would would you consider her the most famous of the, the female Cambodian singers? Yeah, she was certainly
1: the most famous at that time and, and still today. Both she and Cincissimo are sort of untouchable in that regard.
0: We started with uh old pot still cooks good rice from her um, and there's a couple other tunes here. Um, we've got one that's a very dramatic, beautiful song, Heaven's Song. And then we've got Don't Be Angry um, here. Should we jump into one of those? Sure. Which one, uh, which one do you, feels right at I, this moment? I, to,
1: to me, it's Heaven's Song. It's, it has sort of a more Cambodian feel to it. It's, it's not really a rock and roll song. And um, she did come from a, a traditional singing background. So, uh, yeah, that would be this good.
0: This lets her voice shine. Here we go, Heaven's Song. instrumentation on these songs just gets me it's incredible. So unique. Um that again Rossaret right, tia so tia I'm gonna just pronounce every name <laughs> different every time just <laughs> to <laughs> <laughs> cover my bases. Cover the wrong bases. Um were, did you get a sense of some of the the kind of studio team or arrangers or producers? Were were there some kind of shining stars in that world as well?
1: Yeah, there was uh, there was a guy named Mai Boon and, and later a guy named Vo Ho who were the the top composers and lyricists and um, and Sin also was in, in there. But um, yeah, it was really um, a very intricate scene. And you know, Teresa Sotilla's sister told us that. They would rehearse songs for days, and the songwriters would actually come to the rehearsals, and they would tweak, you know, the words and the music, and they were very meticulous about getting it a certain way. I um, mean, I think it's reflective in the sound. It's, it's probably why the music's so great.
0: Yeah, it's it's really special, and you know, the amount of music uh, recorded. You, you were mentioning the amount of songs that, that were coming out, and. If you go to Phnom Penh today you can uh pick up these kind of uh DVDs and CDRs full of like slangden production, slangdin production. Yeah, yeah. There's these... a pro-
1: there's a problem with all that though, in that because the master tapes didn't survive um after the war and after the Khmer Rouge, um, a lot of Cambodian guys started putting out compilations, but because they were working with like cassettes of dubs of dubs mm-hmm. of dubs they did a lot of remixing and they brought in other instruments and the the tape speeds are off. And so, you know, it's been really a challenge to find, and certainly for the film, it was a challenge to find clean versions that were high quality. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I think you were asking me about collectors before and I I didn't really get to talk about that. Um, Through making the film, I've met a lot of, actually a lot. I've met some very important people who have been collecting the vinyl and have been sort of sitting on it and not sharing it and, not even understanding how important it is in some ways, because mm. essentially it has become the, the the best source of the music now, and um, and the soundtrack, which is you know that we just released on Dust to Digital, um, it's all unremixed and it's all fairly high quality. A lot of it from directly from vinyl, mm. so I think that I'm really excited about the soundtrack because I think it's the first time that people can really hear the music clean and yeah. in high quality. So.
0: And so the soundtrack. Don't think I've forgotten Cambodia's lost rock and roll um, is uh, coming out soon on Dust to Digital or R. It you... came out this week, yeah, perfect on the twelfth. And Dust to
1: Digital is a great label. I mean, I it is. they put out a, a compilation of Southeast Asian '78 recordings, traditional music, mm-hmm. and you know they've put out a lot of a lot of great stuff. And and they're really dedicated to preserving old music and and bringing it back. And so when I saw what they had done, I contacted them. And, yeah told them about the film and showed them the film and they were just really you know happy to to jump in so
0: yeah if you're uh, intrigued which i hope you are you can uh follow along play the uh, home game for now Cambodia.com uh, dtifcambodia.com dtifcambodia.com that's the website for don't think i've forgotten cambodia's lost rock and roll a film by john perazzi yeah, you got that one, <laughs> yeah. And um, so you can uh, check that out. So this, you know, the the music scene is uh, uh, really swinging along. There's these popular artists, and in the late '60s, around '69, uh, the U.S. launches a campaign of bombing in Laos and Cambodia. And Cambodia is a neutral country at this point, but the U.S. is. Seeing an inevitable rise of communism there, and well, see- yeah, it's
1: a little tricky. I mean, Cambodia was technically neutral, but the 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 North Vietnamese army was mm-hmm. coming through what was the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which yeah. ran through eastern Cambodia down into southern Cambodia, I mean southern Vietnam, and fighting the U.S. Uh, there. And, and the U.S. military wasn't allowed to cross that border. And so when Nixon was inaugurated in '69, they changed that policy very quickly. And they considered Cambodia fair game mm-hmm. because the leader of Cambodia, Scenic was essentially turning a blind eye to the Vietnamese. So it's all very complicated. Yeah, um,
0: but but it's well, I'm uh, sure we can get to the bottom of it here. Well, I
1: mean, you know, it's a big part of the film actually, yeah. and, it, and it really, you know, as all this starts to happen, the musicians' lives become directly impacted. Mm-hmm. You know, it starts. There's overlap that starts to happen, and ultimately, when the Khmer Rouge take over in '75, you know, their lives become, you know severely impacted. So it's, it was an interesting for me to construct the film in that the music does reflect what's happening socially, politically, um, when the country's at peace, and also when the country's in turmoil. Mm-hmm. And I found that a really interesting thing to sort of uh, focus on and, and bring out.
0: You've got a period of 69 when the bombing starts to 75 when the Khmer Rouge takes over. and. The Khmer Rouge takeover, at least the, the emptying of the cities, you, you know, three days moving two million people, but you've already got six years of war building up to that. The bombings are those more in the countryside and outside of the city? Is the city kind of getting shaky but business as usual? Or how, how much does the scene change between 69 and 75 musically?
1: It changes drastically for two reasons. One is that uh, the, the new government that came in. And the post like in 1970, the Lon Nol government, the Khmer Republic, really embraced U.S. influence and actually um, started getting a lot of money from for the military from the U.S. And but also culturally, they embraced the clothes and the music. And uh, Phnom Penh was all about you know American rock and roll in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, but also um, with the U.S. bombings, which was attempting to you know stave off communism it uh, unfortunately also had some negative effects in terms of radicalizing the peasants because the peasants in the countryside yep. were being bombed so heavily, and the Khmer Rouge were able to use that as a propaganda tool and say, look, you know, they're trying to kill us, they're mm-hmm. trying to wipe us out. So um, as the Khmer Rouge grew in strength, they got closer and closer to Phnom Penh. The bombing got closer and closer to the capital. And this is like 1973 when the bombing was at its most severe mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, musicians talked about playing playing outdoor parties and they could hear the bombs, the B-52s unloading the payloads just, you know, ah. outside the city as they were performing. So, yeah, yeah. It, it does definitely get very, very um, bound together.
0: Is there a, a song on the soundtrack that would be from that that moment just before the Khmer Rouge? What, what do you think would be the latest tune uh, before the Khmer Rouge takeover?
1: There there's the seventies saw a new wave of um musicians and, and songwriters and you know the, the way that the soundtrack is um sequenced, we did it chronologically, historically, and so towards the end you have a band called the Draka, which were mm-hmm. a heavy metal band or hard rock band, but you also have Yule Rong and he did a song called Seeklo and another great song called uh, I'd Rather Die Under a Woman's Sword. Hmm. Which I'm not quite sure what you meant by that but they're great it's great and then Yul Arang was really challenging the status quo um, it's really when the music starts to become a little more politicized and mm. he's he's sort of taking a look at the sort of the conformity of Cambodian culture and challenging it and telling people to, you know you have to stand up for yourself and you have to take control and um, yeah so those songs are definitely you'll hear it I mean it was definitely Yul Arang was almost borderline punk rock I mean mm. the songs were coming out in 73-74
0: should we hear a snippet of one of uh, one of these songs, uh, "Ciclo" or "Dying Under a Woman's Sword"? Yeah, either one. you right, Let's hear "Ciclo." Ciclo. 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 Show. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I'm going to let you uh, have the honors of pronouncing the artist name for that one. Uh, Yule, sort of like
1: Yule Brenner. Yule mm-hmm. Olorong. Oh, nice. Kind of rolls Olarong. off your tongue. Yeah. And you should remember, too, that in, uh, in Cambodia, the, the family name is um, first. Mm-hmm. So his first name is actually Olorong, and his family name is Yule.
0: And you know what? So he's, he's got this kind of new wave of sound coming in. What happened to Yule Olorong? Well,
1: yeah, and that song, Ciclo, it's, you know, the, the thing that I think younger people there at that time when this music was coming out really, really uh, connected to was that he was a very witty songwriter and also very sarcastic. And he's talking about going to the, the local market to check out girls and just hang out, and he's seeing all these different girls, and then what they're all wearing these maternity dresses. And the lyrics go, I thought she was knocked up, but it's just the latest style. <laughs> <laughs> so he was a very, very funny guy. Um, he had been educated in France and uh, was a diplomat's son. And he came from um, a long lineage of, of uh, singers and musicians. His aunt was Singvanti, who was a, a bit, very popular singer, and Cindy. And his uncle was Hasselon, who was one of the biggest composers and actually composed the music for, for ciclo. Which is interesting because Hasselan was also the greatest violin player in Cambodia, and he wrote really beautiful songs. So you know, you, don't, you know, this song is a, obviously a rock and roll song. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Yol uh disappeared into the morass of the Khmer Rouge, like so many of them. And uh, people talked about him being just such a rebel and such a free spirit that there would be no way he could survive. There would mm-hmm. be no way that he could he could pretend he was somebody else because yeah. he-, he was such an individualist.
0: So yeah. And of course, you know, like, like many genocides of this sort, you know, the artists are being targeted, the free thinkers, the intellectuals and artists of, you know, such stature. um,
1: They weren't able to really hide who they were. Yeah. I think some of the lesser known singers and certainly the backing bands, you know, the the musicians, Mm -hmm. the drummers, the bass players, guitar players. Were lesser known, um, yeah. but certainly the, the the most famous singers. There would be no way that they could, you know, hide their identities.
0: What was to become of some of the the most famous singers?
1: You know, it's really what was it, for me. It was a big challenge in the film, and I thought it was a problem. But it just sort of becomes part of the story and part of the sad sadness for the family members because there's so many of them don't have closure. We we don't know like there's. Yeah. Uh, Sin Sissamwut's son, Sin Chin Chai, said something really powerful. He said, you know, 30 different people have told me they were with my father when, when he was working under the Khmer Rouge and when he died in 30 different places. And then he says, you can't die 30 times. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a big part of the story.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the... I had heard a story, was it Pan Ron or one of these artists who... Became just like the you know the 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 young girl who was singing songs the Khmer Rouge forcer to became the wife of one of Pol Pot's cabinet members.
1: There's that's also what I said to you. There are okay. stories about that, but they're unsubstantiated. And I think a lot of people came back and started saying these outrageous stories just to get attention. And and the sisters hmm. who I I sort of trust there. Their knowledge on this will say that they don't know for sure. They have a few different stories as well, and that nothing substantiated it.
0: Were family members targeted as well? I mean, that her sisters—did they have to go into hiding and and, and disconnect themselves from the?
1: Not that I know okay. of. No, and I, but I also think that you know, there's there's this idea that all the, and people were targeted in a very specific way. But I think part of the Khmer Rouge experience was not only were they so brutally you know, murderous, but they were also so inept at running the country Mm -hmm. and the country, just in terms of being able to feed the population, they weren't able to pull it off and, and disease and starvation, you know, sets in and the whole thing sort of collapses on itself. So that's part of the, the problem of like knowing what happened to people. They might've been killed by the Khmer Rouge. They might've died from disease. They might've died from starvation overworking. So yeah, it's, it's sort of a big question mark that hangs over the whole country.
0: Inept at running the country and also just such wild paranoia at the top, you know. And, and you're hearing stories of Pol Pot assassinating cabinet members and thinking people are turning on him. And, yeah. And so it's just...
1: Well, they, they couldn't own up to their own inadequacies as being mm-hmm. leaders of a country. So, of course, it had to be outside forces. And, of course, the people directly under them must have been infiltrated. So there, mm-hmm. were, there were major purges in, in 76 and 77 hmm. uh, of Khmer Rouge leadership.
0: Yeah. This this history, you know, not so distant. Obviously, these are, are visible living scars. And, and traveling in traveling Cambodia, you're the history is very present, as it should be. You're you're able to visit these sites of such terrors, and, and you're you know every day encountering people on the street who are living at that point and whose family members died, um, connecting with these. People that you're interviewing in the film—was w- there always a barrier or a wall? What was the experience of talking with some of the kind of interview subjects?
1: Well, you know, I'm I'm here. I'm an American mm-hmm. and I'm white. Mm-hmm. Um, and going to a foreign country like this and, and asking people to do that is a very—you know—it's a humbling thing, first of all. But it's also there's a lot of cultural barriers to begin with. Yeah, and um, I think I was really fortunate that I had people that connected to the project, like Dr. Linda Safan, who was our main researcher and who conducted a lot of the later interviews and really understood what we were trying to do and understood the you know not just what we were trying to do, but the people that we were we were talking to. And the interview process just became much better because um, she's an urban anthropologist, and she was also a Khmer Rouge survivor. Mm. So she sort of ran the full gamut of the experiences and understanding how to help us tell the story and get people to to share their stories. You know, for her, it was really interesting because she was a child during the Khmer Rouge. She came from the city. Her mother was a French teacher. They were intellectuals, and they survived by hiding their identities. She goes on to get a PhD in urban anthropology from the Sorbonne, comes back to Phnom Penh, and helps us piece this story together. And I think that's a really powerful... Her story is very powerful. Hmm. And people like her who, you know, wanted to get this story out and wanted to share this other side of Cambodia really made the film be what it is. And if I had just done it on my own or with just a U.S. crew, it certainly wouldn't have the authenticity that hopefully it has.
0: Yeah. So the film, don't think I've forgotten, Cambodia's Lost Rock and Roll, directed by uh, John Parazzi, who is here in the Dub Lab studio, is screening... Um, this has, a, a, you're in the midst of a screening series and people can find out more information at DTIF Cambodia.com And the soundtrack for don't think I've forgotten Cambodia's lost. Rock and roll is available on dust to digital, digital vinyl. And it sounds like cassette forthcoming as well. So there's rumors. <laughs> rumors of cassette. Perfect. Um, very excited to see this film, and I'm kind of happy I hadn't seen it yet because if, if uh, imagine that I am one of the many uh, audience members out there, we're, we're able to, to come at this uh, as a blank slate, and uh, I'm so excited to see it here in Los Angeles. I uh, urge you to keep your eyes at DTIFCambodia.com to find out about screenings in your neighborhood and uh, check out the soundtrack. I'd love to close with maybe a tune thinking of, you know, all the, the, we started, you know, we heard this in system with tune with just these lyrics that, that were of a different time, a pre-war time, a, a time where, you know, people can experience love and loss and all these things. But is there another song on here that, you know, maybe has that exuberance or that, that, that beauty that, you know, was at the heart of this pre-war music that we could hear?
1: Yeah, I um, I just want to say one other thing before sure, we, we do that. I just, you know, I think for people when they hear about this film and they they may be reluctant to see it because of the Khmer Rouge component to it and, and that sadness to it, but it's also, when making the film, you know, I started to realize, like, it's actually a very... There's a positive side to this story. Yeah. And the positive side is that the music um, has survived and it's it's the one thing that really helps Cambodians and help people just people in general understand what was lost and what was so special about Cambodia. And, um, yeah, so there's a sort of a positive takeaway to this whole story, hopefully. And, um, that's important to me. And I think it's important to people when they see the
0: film. I'm excited, you know, seeing, seeing just the trailer at this point, uh, the, the music is so evocative and so, so interesting to me, but, you know, never seen, This footage and it's such a treat to be able to, you know, see see the smiles on people's faces and to to experience this music firsthand. So,
1: well, yeah, it really made me understand how important music ultimately really is to all of us, to Mm -hmm. to our our culture and our society, whether it's here or Cambodia, and um, that became apparent through through making the film, and it, it just became more and more of something that I could tap into and. And and really um, feed off of and, and to finish the film. I mean, the film was a challenge, and there were times when I was scratching my head, thinking, "Am I out of my mind?" You know.
0: But but the music is what as as a true filmmaker
1: yeah. frequently does. Well, yeah. You know, you're sitting in the dark room alone late at night and staring at these images and hoping that it's going to all come together. And I, I think it did. And I'm really happy with the film. And I think I got to make the film I wanted to make. But I think. Again, the power of the music is the one thing that I started with knowing I had great music, and ultimately it's the thing we ended it with knowing, Mm. understanding how important it is, even beyond what we had thought at the beginning of the process. So,
0: in in the course of making the film, did you connect with young Cambodian musicians who were starting, you know, from you know. Their their own kind of moment of now and and doing some interesting music.
1: Yeah, it's because the film took a while to make. I got to see how Phnom Penh has changed yet again, mm-hmm. and um, it's an amazing city. And you see it in the film. You see it, you know, grow to being modern, being destroyed, and then people coming back to it. And then now, and there's a, there's a, a, a little postscript at the end where you see the city today. And there's a whole new generation of kids that didn't go through the Khmer Rouge, and have this really hopeful openness mm-hmm. that. Maybe didn't exist so much before their generation, and um, it's exciting now. There, it's really exciting to see. But for musicians there now, you know, the film I think is important because there, there's been a big gap in their cultural history that they have been denied. You Mm. know, this history. So, the film in some small way I think helps fill that. And uh, um, but yeah, it's uh, what's happening there now is really great to see, and they're starting to find their voice again. Mm -hmm. And uh, I heard there was a a new punk rock club that just opened up in Phnom Penh that I'm really excited to get to
0: all right so yeah gotta gotta schedule that follow-up trip
1: (laughs) yeah for sure
0: john thanks for uh, joining us here at dub lab and for sharing the stories and the songs behind the film Uh, again DTIFcambodia.com. don't think i've forgotten cambodia's lost rock and roll directed by john parazzi and featuring the music of so many talented cambodian artists what would you like to close with? What's a?
1: Well, uh, I think you know. There's a bunch. This it's hard to pick. Uh, <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, the Dracar, um were, were the hard rock band I was talking about. Their name comes from a French pirate ship. It's called the Draka. Ah, uh,
0: nice. So we're gonna close with uh, Drakkar. and uh, this is called Crazy Loving You. Big thanks again to John Perazzi. and we urge you to go check out the film. Don't think I've forgotten. Cambodia's Lost Rock and Roll.
1: conversation was produced by dublab a nonprofit radio station broadcasting live from los angeles since 1999 sound editing and theme song by matea baim for more programming visit dublab.com and thank you for listening